Hello, and welcome to the Art of Autism podcast. My name is Andy Boyd. Today on the program, I'm speaking with Sarah Kerchik, a writer most recently of the book, I Overcame My Autism and All I Got Was This Lousy Anxiety Disorder. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You know, I gotta say, when I first saw your title, I didn't see the subtitle, which is, and all I got was this lousy anxiety disorder. So I had a sort of like instinctive, uh, you know, clench when I saw (laughs) I overcame my autism in big, bold black letters. But do you maybe want to explain the joke of, I mean, of course, explaining any joke kind of deflates it, but do you want to explain the joke of your title a bit? I mean, I I absolutely understand why my publisher went with the two different fonts for that, but I probably knowing like other autistic people would not have gone that way um well basically i grew up near niagara falls um and i'm just like a lifelong lover of kitsch and trash and gift shops in tourist towns so i would grow up like going to the falls going through every store there and i mean if you live near a tourist trap you know the you know my grandmother went to blank and all i got was this lousy t-shirt it's like the most popular thing and i think across the world and of course like as a kid I thought this was the height of comedy and throughout my life have been using that pattern for everything I did blank and all I got was this lousy blank and so when it became clear to me that everything I had done to quote unquote like overcome my autism that I thought I was doing right to be like a better member of society and function or whatever was making my life worse in every possible way. I started joking that I overcame my autism and all I got was this lousy anxiety disorder. Um, so when an agent read an essay of mine and started talking to me about maybe developing a book, she said, you know, have you ever considered nonfiction? And all I had for her was a title. But I sort of knew that if she was willing to work with that, we might be able to get somewhere. And everyone along the lines I really thought I'd have to give it up at some point, but I never did. And I'm very happy about that, even though I understand it's not for everyone. In, in your book, you're very uh, clear that you don't want to be seen as a spokesperson for the entire autistic community. Why was that important to you? Both for my own sake and for other autistic people's sake, I figured um, I noticed fairly early in me starting to write about autism, which was about 13 years into my professional writing career, that the way I was writing about autism was contentious in a way nothing else I'd ever written was, which is saying a lot because I was a female music journalist and a female MMA writer. Um, So I know hate mail, but even when I'd write something about, like, say, a rock musician, and it'd be like, oh, women can't write. I didn't really feel the weight of responsibility to represent my entire gender that I felt when anything I wrote was immediately assumed to, you know, be a way to speak against all autistic people or that I was assuming I could represent all autistic people. So I wanted to be very clear when I was writing this book that was going to be primarily about me, even though I do try to connect it to bigger issues in autism, that I didn't want anyone else to be dragged down with my bullshit if someone didn't like it but that also I wanted to be able to free be able to be free enough to talk about the one perspective I have any you know basis and right to talk about 
without having to feel this weight every single sentence that I'm letting one in 43 or one in 63 or whatever number you want to use down just by existing and telling my own story. Right. Yeah, that's that's one thing I really appreciate about this book is that it's a book about autism in the same way that like, I don't know, um, Tis is a book about the Irish experience or something. <laughs> you know, it's like it's it's about it's also a book about professional pillow fight wrestling. You know? Yeah. And it was also like important to me not to make any presumptions to my fellow autistic people. The you don't speak for all autistic people is usually used as a line to divide people with different support needs. But to me, I think it's also just like incredibly important to acknowledge other marginalizations that I don't share. Like I'm a white middle-aged cis autistic lady. Um, and so I don't wanna make any assumptions about what is shared and what isn't. So I wanted to be able to speak from a place where I'm like, here's my story and just like take from it what is useful for you. And I'm thrilled if you think it's useful, but I also respect if it's not. I, I should also mention you have Canadian privilege, which I don't have. Well, I live in Ontario, though, where we have Doug Ford as our pre premier right now. So my Canadian privilege is a little bit mitigated at the moment. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, speaking of Ontario, could you tell us a bit about your background and where you grew up and what that place was like? I mean, you've, you've mentioned living near Niagara Falls, but uh, what, what was the town that you grew up in like? So um, I grew up in Welland, Ontario, which is about a 20-minute drive from Niagara Falls. Um, if you meet anyone from Welland, they will just tell you it's near Niagara Falls. That's its most defining feature. The other thing is if you meet anyone from, well, if you meet a second person from Welland, you will probably want to say like, oh, I know blah, blah, blah. Do you know them too? Because we all talk about it like it's a hamlet of about 15 people. Um, when in fact, I think it's a population of about 52,000 right now. It was 48,000 when I was growing up. Um, it's connected to bigger cities with like various amounts of culture, one of them being Niagara Falls. It's about two hours from Toronto, which is where I was born and where I ran back to. Um, it's, how do I describe Welland? Especially growing up in the 90s, I was, you know, fairly privileged, but I was lower class, um, undiagnosed autistic bisexual in a way that I thought I was hiding, but apparently couldn't. Like I once went to a party and was introduced as the bisexual without ever having come out to anyone. Um, so it was a little bit backward, a little bit stayed. And, you know, I'm pushing 40 now, so I don't want to talk about it the way I did when I was a teenager, but I really felt trapped there. I think it's good for some people. I think it's grown a lot. I know they, they flew a trans flag for some observation last year, which I thought was absolutely huge. And I'm thrilled for the kids who are growing up there now. But it was definitely a place I never felt comfortable or safe, even though I do love it in its own way now. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that was growing up sure. in Welland, Ontario. And I got the sense from your book that your parents, even though they didn't know you were autistic, understood that you were trying your best and and that there were certain things that you couldn't do and that they that no amount of sort of making you do them would make you less miserable while you were doing them, right? They were like just exceedingly practical parents. From the outside, they were so often accused of babying me or spoiling me. Um, 
but like at the time I was aware of what I was going through and how they interacted with it and it meant a lot to me and it didn't really seem like spoiling so much as just like meeting me where I could and like I think I was able to articulate that but maybe five or six years ago I wrote an essay that's not really addressed in the book about um, my running gait, which it was very autistic growing up is another thing we didn't know at the time and something I've had to work through. And probably if I want to run again, because I've not been running for about two years now, I would probably have to like relearn. Um, and as I was just writing about that experience for just a wellness magazine, the editor pointed out to me, she's like, do you know how rare this is? Your parents sound awesome. And I think I knew it was rare, but I don't think I'd like articulated it in that way before. Um, and that was just what they did. They were like always working with the kid they have, never with the expectations of what they thought I should be, I guess. Yeah. I feel like there's often so much emphasis on diagnostic labels that like people lose sight of the fact that if we just treated everybody like an individual with their own distinct needs then maybe maybe getting that that you know valued label would not be as important i mean it's i've considered because i've lived both now without the label and with it, it it's not so much a defining feature i mean it is if you need supports that's how you get them is to have the label but i also feel like it's like a key to a map that you weren't able to read before more than anything else. And yeah, I mean, I'm not, I believe in the social model of disability, but I don't believe it's like a very rigid construct. There's, you know, flow to it. Um, I would always have struggled as a kid um, because there are parts of my autism that are genuinely disabling and induce stress. But I was able to have the energy to mitigate how those hurt me and caused issues in my life because my parents were either running interference or helping me deal with the other things that were social or societal. Um, when did you start suspecting that you are autistic? I mean, you, you mentioned kind of always having difficulties and, and not, that, not that I want to define autism as, as a difficulty. But, but I mean, that's certain... how we kind of figure it out in this world. Isn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We figure I feel like the like autism is a superpower thing is great. But usually the first thing you notice isn't the superpower part. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah. When did you start to think, oh, that when people use that word, they seem to be describing something like my experience. So um, when I was working as an intern at a Canadian music magazine, it was called Chart, one of the friends I made there was reading Curious Incident of the Dog at the Nighttime. I mean, it was the early zeros. We didn't know any better. Um, and she was like, I don't know. I think this might be me. So I went home to Google it. Well, it wasn't even Google at the time. I guess I was Yahoo searching it. This is how old it was uh, to, to just figure out what she was going on about. And then I was reading every checkpoint and I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, that too. And that, and that, it was every single point. And I guess up until then, I just always just assumed I was weird or wrong. Um, or if I was feeling particularly defensive and full of ego, but no self-esteem, like special. <laughs> but, um, and in that moment I was like, oh, 
So I guess this is me or was me because I was so uneducated about autism at the time. I thought maybe I was like had grown out of it or had cured myself. Um, And I really, really wanted to pursue it. But the next search I did was to figure out how I could access diagnosis. And not only was it not covered under my healthcare in Canada, which is all I could have afforded at the time, like I just didn't have access to it. Like I didn't know how to pursue, if I'd had the money, how to pursue a private diagnosis either. And it took years for me to find a place that did private diagnoses. Um, and then it took me absolutely melting down and having no choice but to test and to try to figure out what was going on with me years later to finally get tested. But yeah, there was a period of like six or seven years where I was just like, so I guess this is me. Right. Yeah, I feel like that's like a, a really important point to bring up in the kind of like conversation around uh, self-diagnosis is that like for a lot of people, a lot of the time, self-diagnosis is all they have access to. Yeah. So if we just decide that those people don't count, then like we're shutting out a huge portion of our community that for, for what is a situational reason, like it's not like there's any inherent difference between yeah. those people and, and people like us. I mean, they they have access to no actual resources. They can't take away the funding from a child who is diagnosed by a doctor. All they're doing is asking for that same key to the same map they've been trying to read their whole lives. And when I, because I was anti-self-diagnosis when that was the only tool available to me because, you know, I was a rule follower and thought, well, I'm not allowed to even think I'm autistic because no one's diagnosed me. And when I think of how much easier the struggles I faced in that like seven, eight year gap, no, it was like six to seven year gap where I didn't allow myself to think of myself as officially autistic. And just like how much of an edge that would have taken off if I could have interacted with people or see my life through that lens. I would be an absolute monster to deny that to anyone else. Like I, I want people to have a better life than I did. And I genuinely think self-diagnosis is one of the tools to get there when other things aren't available. Yeah. And at the same time, I think your story also illustrates that like we should fight to make it easier to get an official diagnosis, because I think for a lot of us having a, you know, having a doctor say, yes, what you've suspected for years is actually the case is hugely validating. It's hugely validating. And also it, occasionally shuts up trolls who want to like call me a complete liar and say I don't have any right to talk about autism which shouldn't happen but it is at least helpful <laughs> right that that white coat certainly carries a bit of cultural influence still yeah. whether or not it should yeah. um one thing I love about your book as well is that you know you talk about your childhood a bit but that's not what the book is about um, and it's about living the life of a, a person who's autistic and is also a writer and is also a music nerd and is also like a Russian literature aficionado. And one of the things that you write about quite extensively in the book is dating, um, which I would love to ask you about. Uh, I feel like for me, like I'm fine being in a relationship. Like I'm mm-hmm. married, I have a great marriage, mm-hmm. but like, I feel like being in a marriage is a great circumstance for me because, like, I don't have to, like, flirt with anybody. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I don't have to, like, figure out, like, I know my partner's into me. They married me. Yeah. Like, I own all of their shit. So, like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, I still ask my husband every day if he's mad at me. He's never given me oh, a yeah. pause for this. But I'm just like, well, I need to be sure. <laughs> um, sure, you got to just make sure every single day. Yeah, and I think people are maybe thinking I'm being fatalistic or ridiculous when I say this, or that I'm alluding to like settling in a marriage or staying in something that's not great when it actually is exactly what I want. But I do tend to think that if I hadn't met Aaron or one of the other, like maybe three or four people that might have been suited to me on this planet, I'd be screwed. <laughs> I just happened to meet someone who just like clicks with me as a person who didn't require any of the actual social skills involved in dating an actual courtship. Um, I was really lucky. Did you have an exper- experiences of like people telling you months or years later that they'd been trying to flirt with you at a certain time and being like, oh, I was completely oblivious. I thought we were just having a an exchange of information. Okay, so no one's actually told me this, but it was like years later, I woke up in the middle of the night and went, oh, so when I was interning at a Canadian television station, it was on just a little strip of what was still at the time, mostly like independent and vintage stores. So on my lunch hour, I'd just sort of wander in and out of them because it was like my favorite area in the whole world. And I started going to this one vintage store, Alcatraz, and started running into the same girl there like every day. She looked like sort of like Mina Safari with a much shorter forehead. Um, and I, I thought she was super pretty, but and thought she was like being nice to me, but she was talking to me like three or four times a week and would be like, hey, you should come hang out at Blah 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 Cafe. I'll be there. And I'd be like, oh, that sounds interesting. And then I'd never go. And then one day I needed a thong and they happened to have a like new section that had underwear in it. So of course I went there and she's like helping me pick it out. And she's like, this is nice at all, but you know, I don't wear any underwerwear. And so it was just like sign after sign like that. <laughs> and You're like, all right, cool, weird. I don't know why you bring that up. Seems later. irrelevant to our conversation about buying underwear. Totally. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was like years later, I was, you know, happily in my relationship with Aaron. I woke up at like 4 a.m. and my mind went to that. And I just went, oh, okay. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it's too late to show up at that coffee shop. Yeah, I don't think it exists anymore. And Alcatraz <laughs> is gone too, sadly. <laughs> oh no. I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm yeah, I really enjoyed that, that part of your book. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was the big one. Um, and then I'm sure there's other stuff I've missed. God knows. Um, yeah. And then there's just some painfully obvious attempts on my part that just fell apart because I am not charming. Um, there's a part in your book where you describe what you call a platonic breakup that you had. Yes. And I really love that term because I feel like so often people assume that sort of only romantic relationships count, especially if you're an adult. Yeah. Um, but, but, but a platonic breakup is a real thing and, and losing a friend can, can be as gutting as, as losing a romantic partner. Is that something I, that you felt like you wanted was, to was, make a point of? Yeah. To me, it absolutely sent me for a loop because I mean obviously I had no instinctual social skills so I was learning from what people were telling me and something that had been hammered home forever is that like boys because you know 
I'm going to say boys and girls in that context back in Welland in the 90s. Uh, boys would come and go, but friends would be forever. So that was like, you were loyal to your friends. They were true. It was other real kinds of relationships that you like had to prepare yourself a little bit for just in case. So this best friendship, it was a very intense best friendship. And it was great for most of it. But we met on the first day of pre-kindergarten um I was this is another one of those where like someone should have figured it out first day of preschool I'm like four or five years old walking around the playground sticking out my hand to shake the other kids hands and introducing myself hi I'm Sarah Kerchak who are you and all the other kids were like uh and then I walked up to this one and said, like, hi, I'm Sarah, who are you? And this person said, like, I'm blank. Um, and then we just started talking and I went home and was like, hi, mom, I have a new best friend. And it was actually true for, you know, 10 years. <laughs> and then sort of in the final days of my disastrous grade nine year, some shit went down and I just could not trust this person anymore. And like it completely unmoored me because I didn't think this was supposed to happen. And I, even though I'd never been through a devastating breakup, I mean, I was kind of pleased when the boys stopped talking to me in my like tiny, mild pseudo relationships growing up. Um, but I didn't know how to do this. There was no roadmap. It was just this person who was going to be in my life forever was gone. And yeah, I think we're getting to a point where we start to talk about that more. But like, let me tell you, in 1997, there was nothing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's a very petty footnote on this person I put in the text. But it was one of those things where, I mean, maybe I will write about it someday. Maybe it doesn't need to be written. But I didn't think it was relevant to the story. And my editor's like, you can't just throw this in out of nowhere. You got to explain this. And so I was like, fine. Here's my bitchy footnote. You're literally a footnote in my life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, one other aspect of uh, the, the book that I really identified with is you did a sort of mid-teens media dive where uh, instead of having friends, you had uh, pop culture. Yes. Uh, I, I did the exact same thing. For, uh -huh. me, for me, it was like uh, beat poetry and the early films of Jim Jarmusch. Uh -huh. um, how, did, how did that period kind of form your identity going, going forward? Well, it's like in, in High Fidelity, there's the line like, what came first, the music or the misery? I was actually just writing about this in relation to some of the music I listened to growing up. And I always figured that like sad people liked sad music. I never thought it was a real chicken and the egg scenario here. But sometimes I do wonder like, am I this melancholic? And that's why I really, really got into Ingmar Bergman as a teenager. Or did I Ingmar Bergman come into my life at a very like influential time and there was no going back from the questions of the universe he had instilled in me at a young age um yeah <laughs> I, I mean it definitely made me even more enthusiastic for and open to weirdness and different ways of telling stories 
and all of that. But it definitely like influenced my sadness too. Like just like what live all men look devastated on screen and be like, girl, I know <laughs> it's me too. <laughs> I also have to travel to Stockholm to get my lifetime achievement award. <laughs> I really, really do want to go to Faro Islands someday. <laughs> it it looks great. It looks beautiful. Yeah, in a really like isolated, devastating way, which is exactly what I want. <laughs> Um, and, and you, we've talked about this a bit before, but you mentioned you worked for a, a Canadian music magazine. Um, I want to just give you an opportunity to like, uh, let loose. What are some of the Canadian bands that you loved that people outside of Canada may not have heard of? Oh my God. If you get me started, I might not stop. So like, the band- I'll edit it out. If it gets boring, I'll just edit you out. Sarah. Okay. The band I think that is closest to my heart that I really, really wish other people understood. And there's a number of them, but like my number one is this band called change of heart. Uh, they were formed the year I was born in 1982. Um, they broke up in the late nineties they did a couple of reunion tours, but I think they had their final, final show a couple of years ago. Um, they're, I think, would be classified as indie rock by most standards, but their discography is actually quite expansive in terms of what they're doing. Their best album, which is called Smile, is this like bizarre indie prog rock concept album that's just really stunning and unfortunately came out on cargo at a time when cargo was disintegrating so it never really got the chance either like internationally or in canada to be appreciated they did end up on a major label here in canada later so people know their later work which is tummy suckle which is like a, just a great rock album too um and then steel teeth i think was their final studio album but smile is the one that i just wish people would find it's weird and it's strange but it's got these great melodies it's really bizarrely put together but so smart and so passionate and also there's this one little track on it that is one of the prettiest little songs you'll ever hear it was made the top 40 chart in saskatchewan nowhere else in the world and it's just it's called there you go it's just this tiny little song it's really beautiful so like Oh God! Please check out Change of Heart. Um, the lead singer and driving force of Change in Heart, Change of Heart, is a man named Ian Blurton. He is, I would argue, maybe the most influential creative force in Toronto music, if not Canadian music in general. He's produced a lot of the Canadian records that I love the most. He's gone on to other bands, from Bionic to Blurtonia to Come On, um, that have all produced like really excellent rock music too. Um, so yeah, it's like I almost cried when he followed me back on Twitter because he's like such a big deal to me. Um, there is there's a band that just res- um, celebrated the 40th anniversary of their second album um, called Rough Trade, and it's kind of hard to look up music in Rough Trade because people will find the album re- results first. But Rough Trade is um, like a 1980s Canadian punk art rock band fronted by a woman named Carol Pope, who was an out lesbian before like anyone else was doing that. Um, Their first major hit from their first album was called High School Confidential. It's just, just pure, like queer girl, teenage lust and confusion, which like when I found it as a confused, lusty teenager myself, I was like, oh, that, thank God I'm not alone. 
just like an epic single. They do a lot of cool little punky art rock and I their stuff really needs to be dug up more. Um let's see what else like um Well I'd actually love to go off of what you just said. Yes. Um and and you know you mentioned I really identifying with this lesbian singer and and you've mentioned before in the interview that you're queer, uh which is true of like a weirdly disproportionate oh, yeah. number of autistic people. Um do you have any like armchair theory as to what that's all about? I mean, I've definitely talked about this to other queer autistic people and queer people who were starting to suspect they were autistic. And I was like, um, yeah, but <laughs> I think our general theory is maybe there's something in the wiring, but there's absolutely something social going on here too. That I know for me personally, I, I just, as much as I can mask some aspects of my autism, I apparently could never mask the queerness. So anyone who was looking for it saw it. And I, like, I never even came out. So people were either knew bisexuals existed and just figured out I was one, or they just assumed, would assume I'm straight because that's their only framework. I mean, now that I'm married to a man, people never think it, but it's just because... It, bisexuals are invisible um but I know for me it was just like I was out in part because there was no other option and because whatever social rules I had failed to internalize includes the ones that I shouldn't be and also you know I grew up with supportive parents so you know I think my mom found like boob photos under my bed and then one day she's like oh you like Swedish films I found this one it's called fucking a mall so it's about Swedish teenage lesbians but no it's really about how they hate their hometown I think we should watch it so I think that was her way of telling me everything was okay um but yeah so that's my long way of saying that my theory is that you know either we haven't internalized the rules that you can't be out or can't be queer or we're already on the outskirts of society enough that that is like an option to explore and even ask about yourself or be out about. Um, and I really like, I have to catch myself because obviously heterosexuality exists, but like my default in my brain is that I just never think it's real, which is something I realized when I was like, I binged watched Miami Vice. And at the end of it, I'm like, but why aren't Gina and Trudy together yet? And I was like, oh, because they're heterosexual. That's real. Um, Yeah. So like, I really do think though, that there is more of a spectrum of sexuality that, you know, we either, you know, are lucky enough or just unlucky enough to be rejected anyway, are able to acknowledge and explore a little more. Um, speaking of maligned subcultures, uh, how do you get interested in professional wrestling? So that was when I first started dating my husband, Aaron. He was really into pro wrestling. And we had similar tastes about almost everything else. So I was like, okay, like, how did this smart man I love fall through this trash? I need to understand. And when I started wrestling, uh, watching a couple of episodes to try to understand him, I figured it out pretty quickly. Um, in all fairness, like I've always kind of straddled the line between high art and trash anyway. And I love just the art of storytelling in any form it happens. So not only was I seeing like these characters that I found really funny, um, I'm really over Chris Jericho now because he's a 
fucking mess. But back in like 2000, he was the funniest, most captivating heel in North American wrestling. Um, and so like when I saw him running off his mouth and being this snotty little punk, I was like, that's entertaining. But also just like watching storylines unfold in this live show and getting to see the crowd respond to it. I learned just a lot about storytelling and how people react to stories from that. So I was like super into it. And then I fell out of love with it for a number of years. One of the reasons being Benoit. And then it was just a couple of years ago, some of my pro wrestling friends sucked me back in. And I'm more into most of what I watch is from Japan now, but I'm hesitant to say I'm into Japanese wrestling because I just feel like people who don't know about wrestling tend to exotify that term a bit. And then how did you get involved in uh, the world of professional pillow fighting? So when I got really into wrestling, I also started like thinking, well, like, oh, I want to be a manager or a valet or whatever you want to call it then, which is uh, to non-pro wrestling people, you don't literally manage someone. It's a character. You basically accompany people to the ring, you usually cause shit and help them win and cheat. And especially if like a wrestler is not good at talking and delivering promos themselves, you'll essentially be their mouthpiece to help them get over. Um, and I just like wanted to be a mean valet. And when I was trying to come up with a heel persona, I was like, well, my name's Sarah. I'm a nerd. So obviously Sarah Bellum is what we'd go for here. And so I had this whole character developed, but you know, much like I could figure out how to access testing her diagnosis I also couldn't figure out how to get training to be a wrestler or where to start so it just was this fantasy for a couple of years and then a writer who wrote for the same magazine as me Mouth he was also one of the hosts of live audio wrestling at the time he had been contracted to work with this guy who was in the music scene Stacy Case um, as the announcer and one of the promoters of a professional pillow fighting league so he came to me and was like yeah it sounds like something you'd be into and I was like what any chance to use my character okay so that's how I became a professional pillow fighter unfortunately their fights were real which they really loved as a selling point but I never wanted to be a real fighter I just wanted to cause shit and cheat and not be the tiniest one in the league and humiliated and lose all the time <laughs> Yeah, this is also how I ended up in BJJ for a few years because I was like, well, Hoist Gracie was small and he used leverage in BJJ to win in the early UFC fights. So I will go be the Hoist Gracie of pillow fighting. Um, what is BJJ? Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Oh, okay. Yeah. What was that like? Um, humbling. It was... <laughs> I mean, I, had, I actually preferred Muay Thai and it was like, I had a... I joined this gym for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but they had a Muay Thai like class selection too. And so I tried that just to try it and ended up really enjoying that more. Um, there were parts of it I really liked. Um, I have enough of a background in it now that I'm actually like really getting into how those moves are like played upon and represented in pro wrestling. So that's fun. But it was also, there was stuff about it that wasn't clicking for me that like wasn't the fault of autism, but I didn't know how to approach because I didn't know anything about autism or couldn't call myself autistic at the time. That made it like more difficult than it needed to be. Um, and after a while, I wasn't having it fun anymore. I just thought like, this is good for me. I need to like suffer and work through something. 
but then I just ended up crying in the shower every day <laughs> and then it wasn't good anymore. Yeah. I feel I, yeah, that was another one of the many aspects of this book that I really identified with where it's like, once you find out you're artistic and you start to kind of connect the dots and you're like, Oh, right. I have been bad at every office job I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> there are definite patterns here. Yeah. Um, in retrospect, I think the best thing I learned from jujitsu was quitting. Because, I mean, in most areas of life, you're told to like never give up or never let anything define you. But one of the first things you're taught in jujitsu is how to tap. Because if you're in an arm bar and you don't tap, your arm's going to get broken. And then you have a longer path to like the next victory than if you give up, learn from your mistake, and go try to fight a different move. Um, and, I mean, it's not even like jujitsu applies that to life as much as they should. But it is like, sometimes you have to give up to get ahead. Um, I'd love to ask you about a kind of more serious topic uh, that you cover in your book, which mm -hmm. is alcohol use. Yep. Um, and and I'm, I'm about a year and a half uh, sober. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but, but which is to say, I used to drink too much. Yes. And, and I feel like in, in very similar ways to what you describe, I, I thought that alcohol made me better at social interaction. But what I found out through... <laughs> through third party yeah. observers, what the, it, it actually just made me feel like I was better at social interaction. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, how did you, yeah. How did, what was your, what's been your kind of evolving relationship with, with alcohol? Well, I just, I think it's complicated to say this because the second you say it, you sound like a problem. Like, I don't think my relationship to it is problematic, but I'm also just like autistic and anal and follow rules so all the time I'm like hyper analyzing is that true or is the very fact that I'm saying it aside I have a problem um but yeah I if I'm self-medicating it's very very minor self-medication I do feel like for me it's a solution better than some of the other options available um I also just appreciated casual drink as like a culinary experience um i grew up near the wine region of canada basically so that's like i like supporting local wineries and cideries and stuff like that and i like the stuff that's produced in that area of the world um but it definitely is something i will use to take the edge off so, you know, one or two drinks will make me less self-conscious and less hyper-analytical of everything I'm doing. It's just that there then becomes a point where if I have more, then I think, no, I'm awesome, instead of, no, you're okay. Um, so, <laughs> right. And then, yeah, I get a little repetitive, and I think people are my friends, and they're not my friends, because, again, I am not charming. I'm not someone who just, like, there were maybe five people in my life I've met and like liked instantly. And they're like my very close circle and everyone else I have to either win over or I'm just not for them. Um, so that's a problem. And then in terms of like sensory issues when I'm hungover, those are getting worse with age. So, I mean, a hangover will already make you sensitive to light and sound, which I was already sensitive to. So that that's kind of a bitch. Um, I think the other thing that keeps me in line is as I get older too, I just don't like being dehydrated. <laughs> that feeling in the morning of like, 
oh, I really, really need water. This is unpleasant. I'm like, okay, maybe I don't want to have a drink ever again. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there definitely isn't enough coverage or studies on why substance abuse is such an issue for autistic people or enough resources on how to help autistic people with substance abuse or just like open dialogue about those of us who maybe aren't like a hundred percent healthy about it but want to like not make it worse i feel like this is one of the like things that is so infuriating about the dumb cure stuff is it's like regardless of whether they'll ever find a cure which i don't think they will because i don't think it's possible but like it just sucks so much air out of the room whenever there's a conversation about autism because, or, or whenever there's funding about autism, because it's like, no, like we don't need another, we don't need another, like, uh, we don't need another therapy. We don't need another, like, you know, quack cure. What we need are like studies that show us like why so many of us are gay and why we all drink too much. Like that's like, get to the real issues, people. You know, if you really want to advocate for the community, like find out, uh, find out the answers to the bird. Why does my stomach hurt all the time? You know, like, is that related? or you know do i just need to stop eating cheese like <laughs> those are the answers that those are the questions i want answers to personally um well sarah i've already taken up so much of your time but i just want to thank you so much for coming on the art of autism podcast oh, to talk about your great. wonderful book um do you have any other projects that you'd like to let people know about well, the audiobook came out today so i, I know for a lot of autistic people that's a much better way to process a book um so i'm very very happy that it finally came through um and everything else is kind of in its early stages so yeah all i have to plug right now is the book and then yeah i'm working on some other stuff that i hope happens so stay tuned in the longer term for that i guess do you have a, like a website where you post links to your articles um i think the best place to follow me is on twitter where you're just going to deal with a lot of other obnoxious nonsense too um, <laughs> but I, I will share all of my links there and it's at fodder figure f-o-d-d-e-r-f-i-g-u-r-e so yeah upon on father figure um and same username on instagram um so yeah those would be the main places to i will tell you everything i'm writing um, the pin tweet on my Twitter account is also a link to a card that he'll have all of my latest, um, all my latest links and stories and also links to interviews and podcasts I've done. So this will eventually be here too, um, so that people can find out just in general what I do, what I am and whether or not the book's for them. Sounds great. Well, um, I'll, I'll definitely check that out and I'll be on the lookout for your uh, future writing, Sarah. Thank you so much.